these things. Uh, I love Christmas time as well. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, I asked the Lord to help me lay some passages on my heart over the next probably five or six messages with all the different services we have. And he led me to the thought of the struggle, the tension between the fall of mankind and Christmas. And I want to preach on that. I think we see it in that passage. Uh, so pray for me as we go through this. And uh, let's pray, and then we'll look at the scriptures. Father, thank you for this time together. We count this a blessing. You, you're the one who gathered your people. You started doing that immediately. As you drew people to yourself, Old Testament, New Testament, you caused them to want to be together. It's, it's a reflection of the now incarnate body of Christ here on earth, the body of Christ now assembling the arms and legs and feet and noses and so forth. We all make that up, Lord, as we've been learning. And we thank you that you have assembled us here. And we give you praise for that, Lord. We are not a perfect reflection of you, but we do love you. And we love your word. And I pray you'd keep us striving for those things, Lord, as we love you and finish out this life, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, that we can go to it. It has our answers for life and godliness. It causes us to know you and love you more, Lord. And we pray today you would stimulate us to love one another, to love you, and to understand the great victory you had over sin as Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth and accomplished the great promises that you had laid down. Lord, we do think of those who can't be here. There are many who have gone through procedures this week, uh, who are going through treatment. Others are sick, uh, some children. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would put your healing hand on them. Lord, for those who may never return to the, to the worship service here, the sanctuary, we do pray for them as they remain at home and wait for you to take them home, Lord. Lord, cause them to, to know you in unique ways, Lord. And we do pray for them, their caretakers, and and those blessed people. Father, we're so grateful for our missionaries around the world. We thank you for a good report on them at our meeting. Lord, we ask that you would continue to let us join you in what you're doing in different places. And may we do that for your glory and for the joy that we receive from that. Now, Lord, we want to turn to your word. And we want you to surprise us and encourage us and challenge us and cause us to think deeply about what you did for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It wasn't taken long, even well before Thanksgiving, to my dismay. You begin hearing Christmas carols all being played everywhere you go. Um, I started to listen to some of them. I jotted a few of their phrases down because when you listen to, to the world's Christmas carols, the world's not the hymns and stuff, um, you just think you live in nirvana, right? Listen to some of these. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your, light, let, let your heart be light. From now on, from now on, isn't this, wouldn't this be true? Our troubles will be out of sight. <laughs> Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Words have changed, haven't they? For now on, your troubles will be miles away. Yay. Wish that was true. Another one said this. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Really? with kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings. When friends come to call, it's the hap happiest season of all. Have yourself a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Well, is that true? 
how do we how do we handle that? Well, according to a recent article from the Trust of American Health, things are not as good as the, the Christmas jingles tell you. Death from alcohol and drug and suicide over the last few years has skyrocketed. It hit a 20% increase in one year, the year of 2020, COVID. Massive outbreaks of suicide. Countless times we've spoken with our sons in the military and they said, Dad, you just cannot believe how many soldiers are killing themselves. Suicides, drug-induced suicides, alcoholism is on the rise and it continues to grow. Another article by Our World and Data said this, with alcohol and drug and suicide deaths on the increase, we expect an unprecedented 30% increase of drug, death, alcohol, abuse, and suicides. All states seen an, uh, an extraordinary increase, all 50 states except New Hampshire. And for the first time, two states, West Virginia, New Mexico, surpassed, listen to this, 100 deaths per 100,000 people. You start doing the math on 7 million people, you begin to realize the staggering numbers of this. They went on to say it's nearly impossible to find the numbers of the worldwide pandemic of drug and alcohol and suicide rate. The third world is very difficult to get these numbers out of them. But we know in the last few years, the numbers have been astronomical. How about divorce? Well, good news, divorce is going down. But that's because nobody's getting married. Another article said that cohabitating together is growing and marriage is decreasing. The article said this, the percentage of unmarried couples with children, just unmarried couples with children, not unmarried couples, has risen 15% in the last decade. Now, if you do the math, that's 55 million people that are not married, not committed to the covenant that God laid down of marriage and are having raising families in it. The figures of 2022 are expected to be as high, if not higher, and if the economy tanks, these numbers will increase exponentially. So is Christmas a temporary distraction from the massive sin issues that plague fallen man? It can be, can it? And if you don't know Lord Jesus Christ, you, you try to rally yourself, right? I have dealt with so many people through the years in counseling, and, and I would say after coming back from maybe not counseling for a few weeks, and after the holidays, how did you? Well, we made it through, but now... This the flood of all the problems come back to tear into their lives. And sadly for most, this seems to be the situation of the world. And I want you to remember that sin has a goal. Kill, break, and destroy. That's why Satan introduced it to the first couple. Kill, break, and destroy. That's the goal. And it's very effectively finding its purposes. When you look at a modern-day manger scene, you start to think about Christmas now, they're, they're often very happy, right? Gina just brought our grandson a little manger scene from Fisher-Price or something like that so she doesn't destroy our, our other ones. Um, and I was looking at them the other day, and they're such happy little guys. You know, the little sheep just looks like he's bursting with joy and all that. You want to be a sheep in the first century? <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> But that's, that's our world, right? Our world is built on temporary happiness. What can drugs, alcohol, sex, money, anything else 
uh, pursuit of something? How can that get me through at least till I fall asleep at night? And I'll start again in that kind of pursuit. There is a battle between the fall of man and true Christmas. True gospel when we say Christmas, right? The Bible says this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. We'll come back to that, that little phrase, but listen to this. Born of a woman, pain. Pain. Women can attest to that. Childbirth under the fall is no picnic, right, ladies? And it's not just the birth, it's everything that comes with it, complications. A child now in a fallen world, all the things that come with it, medical issues and so forth, raising them in this crazy world that wants their hearts and minds, all of that comes with it. And Jesus was born of a woman. The next phrase says, born under the law. Well, one of the first things we understand law is it exposes sin. Jesus was born into a very sinful world. So sinful that the ruler of the area would kill children to try to get him. Hmm. Sounds familiar? But he did this so that he might redeem those who are under that law, under that sin condition, when put up against the perfect character of God, it was to expose that, that he might receive them, change their entire position, adopt them to be his children. That is the goal. And it's precious, isn't it? That's what Christmas is. So new life was coming, but it was costly, wasn't it? It was costly. A study in the names in the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. Some of them a little more difficult to track down, but many of them have wild lives. <laughs> difficult lives. As that seed of Jesus Christ was coming, and it was no easier when the Lord got here. And so this morning, and probably this morning and next Sunday morning, I want to focus on the tension between fallen mankind and Christmas in the gospel. And I, I, I know, I want you to think that's depressing because this is really important because I promise you're going to be full of joy when you see and be reminded the victory that Jesus has. But yet we must understand that it was difficult and there was a great cost for us to do this as Christians. Well, point number one, and we'll see how far I get today, but bear with me. We'll get you out on time here. The first Christmas came with great difficulty, but with a greater promise. The first Christmas came with great difficulty, but with a greater promise. Let's look at that passage that Pastor Paul read for us in, first, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. I just want to look at the very first verse here. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, look at the little phrases that are in here, before they came together, should be a comma there, she was found to be with Christ by the Holy Child. Now, when you read that verse, at first, you know, we love Christmas, we go, oh, it's Mary, and, and she's the virgin conception and all that stuff. And, but when we look deeper, we go, there's difficulty here, isn't there? <laughs> This is a young mom, an unmarried mom, who's pregnant. She's found to be that way. These are difficult times. This is not what she had planned. This is not what Joseph had planned. This is, this is not how you start your family out. 
And who in the world is going to believe us? In fact, Joseph didn't. But there is great news within this verse as well. I want you to look at this. And here you begin to see that in this one verse, we have the account of the divine conception of Jesus, the God-man. In this one verse, look at this. They was found, and, 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 and I know that's difficult, to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There's the work of the Spirit here in this brevity of this account. The recording suggests that there's no other way man could not produce this on their own. It was a God thing, right? It was God doing this. And the explanation of such, when you think about this, this momentous occasion, think about all the way from the garden. We're going to look at that in a minute. All the way from the garden has been anticipating this. This a momentous occasion could never be described by man in some single verse, but God can do it. She's found pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. 17 verses before this, Matthew is seeking to prove the genealogy of Jesus and that he is the rightful Messiah. And then it comes to this one verse here where we see this miraculous conception. It's not a miraculous birth. Jesus suffered in all ways like us, right? He, and Mary did too, right? It's a miraculous conception. Don't, don't miss that. There are religions that mess that up gravely. But here in this verse, Jesus descends miraculously from God through what, listen to this, never again repeated act of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is recording it. <laughs> so if you've got a problem with that, you've got a problem with the Spirit. Never done before, never done again. Just look at this word birth here. It's fascinating. It's the same Greek word as the word genealogy in verse 1. And so what Matthew is doing is he proves that Jesus is the Messiah. He is continuing all the way through Jesus to show he is the, the capstone of the promise of God, the lineage of, of, of David, the lineage of, of God's promise to come and rescue man. He's born. He's birthed. The God-man is coming to the earth. Now, Mary, whom we will speak more about next week, um, has very little recorded about her. <laughs> and when you think about what the world or works-based religions have done with her, there's such very little talked about her. We know she's most likely from a poor family, a native of, of Nazareth. She's most likely a family involved in agriculture, some life. She has probably a difficult life. She's young. She's somewhere between 12 to 19, somewhere they, they imagine. A lot of people seem to land around the 16, but there's no way to know that. We know from scriptures that she had a sister named Salome. She's the mother of James and John, and that makes them cousins of Jesus. And when you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38, this is the genealogy from Mary's side. When you see she's linked to the Davidic covenant there, we see there's great difficulties there as well. Each and every one of these names, God had to protect the line of Christ through very difficult circumstances. Mary's father is believed to be Heli. And next week we'll tackle Gabriel's appearance to her. 
But Mary is sensitive and her heart is submissive to the Lord, but it's an extremely difficult situation. She's fallen. Everyone around her has fallen. And yet she has to live out the divine calling that God has given her. There's tension there, isn't there? We know even probably less about Joseph. We know his father's name was Jacob. We see that in verse 16. And he was a carpenter and a craftsman by trade, Joseph was. During the beginnings of the rejection of Jesus, in Matthew 13, verse 55, it says, Is not he the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not these his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's 55. 57, two verses later, they took offense at him. There's tension here. The king of glory, well, we just sang the choir and all that, we think is beautiful. There's massive tension in this. The religious leaders of the day who, in a way, own the souls of these people are rejecting the only one who can save them. There's tension with the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. John chapter 8, verse 41, as they mocked Jesus, the Pharisees, they said to him, we are not born of fornication. That gives you some insight of what Mary and Joseph are about ready to accept from God. That's years later. Joseph's probably dead. We are not children of fornication. You know that text. Jesus says, yeah, your father is the father of lies. There's tension here, isn't there? But the scriptures are clear in verse 19 that Joseph was a righteous man. Notice that. Joseph was a righteous man. Meaning he kept the law consistently. And he, and he, and he didn't just do it on an outward side like many of the Pharisees had done. He was keeping it from his heart. There was a real difference in it. The law was not a burden. The law was to honor God and show him he was worth worship and living for for Joseph. And God marks him as a righteous man. And he must have been longing for the Redeemer of Israel. That's a trademark. He was longing for the Redeemer of Israel. But notice in 18, verse 18, that the scriptures tell us that Joseph and Mary were in a betrothal stage, a courtship if you be. The ancient world, particularly the Hebrews, the parents arranged the marriage. Children, you should listen up. We want, we're going to go back to this. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we would like to at <laughs> times. Um, but things were arranged by parents. If not all of the marriages, most of them, from what we can study. And the children, listen to this, were not consulted. Marriages would start anywhere from as young as 12 as recorded, with young ladies and boys maybe being a few years older. Certainly Joseph was probably an older man because of his death, but we don't know that. A Hebrew marriage had two stages. The first would have been in this betrothal stage. It lasted around a year. We would liken it to um, an engagement. The second stage would have been the marriage ceremony itself. But during this first betrothal stage, it was, it was a time where the groom would gather up his wealth, his dowry, and he would present it to his future father-in-law. He would, in a sense, pay the bride's price. Now, you guys, or dads in here that marry off daughters, 
things really got messed up somewhere. Because <laughs> you give out a lot of money and you get nothing back. So those who are raising a bunch of girls, um, you know, go boys, huh? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the way it was, though. Now, during this time, they, what, as soon as this started, this betrothal, they entered into a legal contract. They were legally looked at as married. And yet, they had none, if very little, contact with one another until the consummation of the marriage after the ceremony. The betrothed couple did not get a chance to work out some of these things. And during that stage, there was absolutely no physical contact. If there was before the consummation, following the ceremony, it was considered adultery. Now notice in verse 18, it says before they came together. And this is an extremely important phrase here. This phrase indicates the purity of their physical relationship. And both the Old Testament and New Testament speak much about God's desire for our purity. In marriage, before marriage, purity is something that reflects our God. But Joseph and Mary's purity had, had an important evidence to it. It was not only their godliness and their favor they found with God, but yet it exposed that God had a plan to uh, separate Joseph's role in any way to, to make sure that no one could say Jesus was a sinner. You say, how do you know this? Well, Mary's reply to all of this, we'll see next week as the angel comes here, she goes, how can this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel say, you're, you're, you're pregnant with, by the Holy Spirit. Well, how can this be? Just are their own statements. But Joseph and Mary's godliness extends way beyond this betrothal period, and it extends even into their early marital relationship. After the ceremony, what, how that would have been, we're not told. All we know is they seem to be alone when they come to Bethlehem. That, that would have been so foreign to the census taken. You would have been with family. You were there to be counted as family and tribes and so forth, but they're alone. And so whatever that ceremony looked like, they protected Mary's purity till that child was born. This couple was used by God to protect the reputation of Jesus. Jesus is sinless, and in no way can be conceived by man. He has to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. It has to be inside that Trinitarian relationship, not with man. And so Jesus is never called in the Bible the son of Joseph. And Joseph's never called Jesus' father. And Mary's song that we see in Luke is... She never praises Joseph. And that doesn't mean she did not appreciate Joseph. It seems that Joseph took good care of her. But she points to the Son of God and all of his holiness. See, if Jesus is conceived by any, any act of human will, he cannot be the divine Son of God and thus not the Savior of the world. These are hills we die on for our own salvation. And those who attack these prove themselves not to be saved themselves. Because if we have a Savior that has been infected by mankind in any way, he cannot go to the cross. He could, but his death would be worthless. His resurrection would be meaningless. And so these are hills we die on, aren't they? 
This is a God-given faith, right? This is a great mystery. We, un- we don't fully understand how this happens. The Holy Spirit places Jesus in the womb of Mary. Well, again, we'll see that next week. It's extraordinary. It's miraculous. And only the saved really wrestle with this and get their mind around it in some level and appreciate it, right? It's not just a doctrinal point that we like to argue with people with. We know our salvation's wrapped up in this, isn't it? The purity in the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, we, we do this with lots of things, right? I've been watching a few YouTube videos on creationist and, and uh, evolutionist. And I love, I love a lot of our creationists that are very godly people. They'll just bring him right back and say, it's faith. Yeah, we think the evidence shows a creator much more than your little, keep, just keep adding another billion years and then, you know, type of teaching, uh, they certainly highlight that. But in the end, they say, we believe by faith. Because no one was there. We just look at the evidence. But we believe by faith, ultimately. And so we believe in faith in creation. Anybody want to stand up here and give us a, a full and complete understanding of the Trinity? <laughs> We chisel away on that truth all the time, don't we? Trying to get our mind around that uh, just mar- marvelous relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We believe it by faith. Anybody want to talk about the indwelling of the Spirit? God himself takes up residence in each believer's life. That's, that's miraculous. That's the eternal God taking up residence in you as a believer. See, you know you're saved. I mean, because he takes up residence. If he's not in you, you ain't saved. And if he's in you, you have this battle with sin and flesh. You do not want to live the way your flesh wants. And there's a war between you and the flesh. And, and there's a battle because the Spirit of God is in there. And he's trying to produce his fruit in your life. And you know it. But I'll tell you what, that is a miraculous thing, isn't it? That God would take residence in our life. Mary's miraculous conception here by the Holy Spirit is the only time in all of history that a woman has a seed within her that did not come from man. Think about that. It's, it's amazing. She's a sinner. She's in a sinful world, a world that's full of death and dying and lives are short and, and, and rulers are ruling with iron fist. And it's a mess. This world that Jesus is born in is a mess much like today. And yet in this, that passage in Galatians 4, 4 said this, but in the fullness of time, think about, listen to this phrase, God sent forth his son, Joseph. Take care of your earthly son, but he's mine. I'm sending him. And I love that. And so we must defend the virgin conception. Our salvation depends on it. Jesus is set apart from the sinful nature of man. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Before we get to the supernatural reinforcement of this text and this 
miraculous conception, you must stop and observe why the scripture recognizes Joseph here. He's, he's someone, at least at first, thinks he's been cheated on. See, I told you there's great tension in here when you stop and slow down and tear this passage apart. The love of his life is pregnant by somebody else. See, there's tension here. Have you ever talked to somebody who was cheated on in their marriage? There's hurt that is just almost indescribable at times. And, and they will struggle, right? They'll, they'll struggle somehow, and they'll start to take shame on themselves for something someone did to them, and you have to work through that. It, it, some twisted thinking in our fallen nature just doesn't handle sin well at times when we just don't live at the foot of Jesus Christ in some of these most difficult things. Scripture's teaching us here that Joseph's suffering. His heart's broken. Sin looks like it's winning in his relationship with his bride. Sin looks like it's got the best of them. They're not going to make it. I think Joseph's heart is revealed in this passage, isn't it? Can you imagine how heavy it must have been? Can you imagine the difficulty of all this is? See, there's a tension between fallen world and this Christmas thing that we love so much, right? There's a great tension there. But notice Joseph chooses to act in a righteous way. He does two things. First, he decides that he, he would not marry her, right? Because he knew at this point that the baby wasn't his and he should step away and, and, and let somebody else have this. It's his first thought, right? His second thought is even more kind. He chooses to say, I will give her a quick divorce I will put her away quietly. This is an act from his righteousness, his love, and his kindness, so she will not suffer the consequences that only he understands at this point. So Joseph knew that Mary's pregnancy outside of marriage could be fatal. They're still under the law. They would have known the passages in Deuteronomy chapter 22. They would have known that if a man lies with a woman, a woman lies with a man, that's not their husband or their of, or their um, wife, that the families are to take them out and stone them personally. That's the law they were under. Joseph knows this. You know, nowhere in the scriptures do we find his bitterness or resentment. So you want to know why he's called a righteous man? He's living in great tension, great tension, but he still does what's right. He loves her. Notice he, he desires that no shame or harm would come to her. He's just going to back away, right? You can feel that difficulty. Some of you have been there at some level. But while he's thinking about this and probably crying, he's kind of, we're kind of fall into a dream, so it doesn't make hard to think why he's thinking about this. And if you've ever been brokenhearted over something and carrying a difficult weight of something and you're laying in bed and you're praying and you're working through things, eventually you, dream, you drift off, right? And that's my commentary here, but I think that's what happens. It seems he falls asleep, and then God sends this, think about this, this supernatural reinforcing message from the angel of the Lord. He's done, right? Before that, he's done. I'm backing out. 
I'm going I'm to protect her the way I back out, but I'm done. And there was no possible way for Joseph to go forward in his mind. He couldn't go forward, right? I'm just going to have to step back now. So God supernaturally intervenes here. Notice verse 20. The angel says, Joseph. Doesn't say, hey, you. <laughs> hey, are you the guy? I don't know who this guy is. He's been appointed by God. He's in the line of Jesus Christ, right? He's been known from the foundations of the world that God was going to send the seed of Christ through this family, and Joseph needed to be in that family line, right? And though he does not uh, impregnate Mary, he is in the line of David. And so the angel says, Joseph, to reinforce who he is, says, son of David, you're the right guy. You're the right guy for the job. Don't be afraid. Joseph, take her as your wife. I mean, these are just great words, right? I mean, you, sometimes we need these affirmations. I've had people walk in my office and say, Pastor, just tell me what to do. I go, I can't, but I can show you a passage. This is the God, our God speaking to Joseph through this angel, telling him what to do. Here's what you need to do. Take her as your wife for... And here's the key. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this this week. John the Baptist's parents, Joseph and Mary, they are the first to hear God speak in 400 years. That's about five to six lifetimes of the generation in here. Of hearing from God. And God's speaking now. And he's speaking in remarkable ways. And in past times, he spoke through dreams and angels and so forth, as Hebrews 1 says, but now he's going to speak in his son, but this is, this is about his son and his son's coming and it's his words that we're going to uh, find life in, right? And you'll notice as you study this, these words strengthened Joseph. They strengthened him to obey the will of God. He wasn't the earthly father of Jesus, but Jesus would be his legal earthly son. And so God brings all this sovereign choice using the righteous life of Joseph his Davidic lineage, his God-given position, and Joseph responds to God. Now, don't miss the profound statement that the angel made here. For that which is conceived in her, this is very important, Jesus is not some spirit being floating around her womb. <laughs> it's in her. This is... Anybody who, moms and dads who have ever birthed a child together, this is that situation. She is with child. And the Spirit set that child in the womb. And this testimony of God, of his son's virgin conception here, is amazing. And if you have a problem with it, you have a problem with God. Because you're going to reject his plan of salvation. So this alone made... Uh, makes the when you start to think about all of that, the tension there, this first Christmas was difficult, wasn't it? Now look at verse 21 with me. She will bear him a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I love this verse. There's a ton of hope in this verse, isn't there? All the questions and tension that Joseph has had here now. There's results, right? There's a statement. There's, 
He's going to try to get his mind around this, and the angel gives the results of this divine and historical and providential covenant-keeping ultrasound, right? (laughs) It's a boy, and his name's going to be Jesus. And he's going to save his people from their sins. See, I don't think anything short of that would have would have helped Joseph, right? And so his name's not to be Joe Jr. It's to be Jesus, right? Because he reflects the Hebrew name, right? The, the Hebrew name we would get Joshua and Joshua and so forth out of that name. And that all reflected that Jehovah, Yahweh, will save. And, and everybody else who bore that name before or after could not fulfill the the full meaning of that. In fact, they would have to be saved by somebody else. But Jesus, Jesus could do it. He could save his people from their sins. By his own finished work and his work alone, Jews and Gentiles and Joseph and Marys all needed salvation because the apostle summed it up this way. There is Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given whereby man must be saved. Not through Mary, not through anybody else. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It is only Jesus. Nobody gets new life outside of Jesus. And we die on this hill, don't we? Notice in verse 21 that the angel explains that there would be no deviation from this, right? This is what's happening. This is God's sovereign plan. It's predicted and promised throughout Scripture. In order for God to fulfill this covenant, the seed of the woman must be protected. And so life's got to be preserved here, and God himself is doing that. The Holy Spirit is overshadowing. And think about this. He's preserving life for death. She's not going to miscarry. Herod's not going to get him because there's another death. I sat down and thought about this, and I wrote this in my notes. I want to read this to you. Born to die are not the most encouraging statements unless we speak of the birth and death of someone that was planned from eternity past, anticipated through history, able to complete the promise of God perfectly, satisfy God's wrath infinitely, beat death in the grave entirely, destroy death and Satan eternally, joyfully secure the everlasting future and perfect fulfillment, fulfilled all that took place that was spoken of him by the prophets. That's the only way we can say born to die. (laughs) With hope. But humanly speaking, what a difficult road this was. What a difficult road when we come to this. Point two. And this is where I'm going to get just a little bit into this and we'll leave off and pick this up. But the sin of mankind and the unstoppable promise of God. Look at verse 22 with me. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now that's going to refer to Isaiah. I'm going to save that Isaiah 7, 14 passage to next week. But I want to take you back to Genesis because I've been talking about this tension between the fall of man. And when I think of Genesis and the importance of the doctrine of Genesis, it's just something we, we can't miss. It's something so, so important to our faith of our sinless Savior and his work to be able to beat sin that it just can't be missed. Go to, with me to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to run back to the garden real quick and start there and work my way forward, and then we'll close and return here next week. Genesis 3, as you know, is the fall of mankind 
It's a real downer, man. <laughs> the first two chapters are just, man, creation, God speaking, worlds are, the world is being formed, and, and chapter two is this commentary of day six when God forms Adam and Eve, and Adam's naming animals, and he finds himself alone, and God says, I got a gift for you, her name's Eve, and wow, just incredible beauty, no sin. Chapter three. <laughs> Satan comes with sin to kill, break, and destroy things. And he introduces it to them. And so the Lord shows up after this and says, what have you done? Verse 13. Isn't that interesting? The God of all knowledge asks them a question, what have you done? He knows exactly what they've done, but he's giving them a chance to confess. He does the exact same thing with Cain. He does it with us as well. He'll say, what have you done? Are you going to blame shift it or are you going to own it? This is the way the Lord works. He brings us, he leads us to repentance. The woman says, well, I'm not going to own this. The man says, I'm not going to own this. Verse 12 says, the woman you gave me. She looks around and says, well, the serpent, and he's gone. And so the Lord starts to hand out the consequences of sin. He turns to the, what would have been the serpent, which is a reflection or symbol and Satan took on there. He says, because you have done this in verse 14, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. I still believe that. I'm not a big snake guy. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And so that's why we um, are often careful with those creatures, because we realize they're a symbol, they're a teaching of something. But this is what he's really after. I will put enmity between you and the woman... Now, here's the key. Between your seed and her seed. This is far more than a slithery thing, right? He's speaking about Satan. There's going to be great enmity between man, Christ, and Satan. But here's the good news. He shall bruise your head. That's a crushing blow. The Hebrew word is used of somebody crushing something. Christ will crush Satan, is what the Bible's saying here. But he shall bruise your, crush your heel. There's a battle, isn't there? And that battle raged all the way to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he's defeated now, he is not, not thrown into the pit yet, but, but he's still working against these things. But he has been crushed. He has a deadly wound that is about to end him permanently. Notice he turns to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. There was no children before the fall to compare it to. But that's just not the pain a woman feels in the birthing of a child. There's much more to that. We bring children into a corrupt and fallen world. And you have to be a parent to fully understand this, to realize how difficult it is when we first get those children and then all of a sudden you realize, what did I do? <laughs> what a world we brought them into. But then we're reminded that God is greater than those things. He loves to save and draw people to his name and we begin to pray for our children, don't we? And not only did she have that struggle and this tension between walking with God and, and walking with her family, she now has tension with her husband. Your desire will be for your husband. I think that 
is being pushed hard, right? Redefining words. But she has to have a desire, and yet he will rule over you. So there's this tension. Women wanting leadership, men wanting to uh, give it away. Men failing to lead or leading poorly. Women failing to submit or not submitting right. I mean, there's this tension that comes with the fall. And now think about this. All in the manger scene or all in this scene with Joseph hearing these things and Mary hearing these things. And all of a sudden they're going to be shoved into this relationship with a supernatural, miraculous conception within her womb. And they're battling these things. They're humans. They're, they're sinful themselves. Adam doesn't escape this at all. Verse 17, because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, that isn't a, a mark against women. What it is, it's, it's highlighting that you rejected God's word and you went to another human for your source. Isn't that amazing? We often do that. That's why we seek the counsel of God's word and we're careful with the counsel of the world, right? And you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil of it you will eat all the days of your life. Work just got difficult. Very hard. And every one of us who work for a living, and that's probably everybody in here, you know sin's against you. It's battling you in every aspect of life. It's a battle to bring home that paycheck. And this is what comes with this. And there's this tension, right? That's going on. Thorns and thistles shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field and by your sweat of your face you will eat bread. And then there's this thing called death. Dirt's calling us, isn't it? From dust you were taken, dust you return, the dirt is calling us. That's the fall. And this year we will probably have more funerals than we do weddings. Someone asked me the other day, I said, I think I've done double the funerals that I have weddings since I've been in the ministry. Dirt is calling us because of the fall. This is the tension we live in. And this is why our world seeks to escape, right? They, they have no answers for the dirt. They have no answers for sin. They have no answers for those things. And so let's have a Merry Christmas. Let's try to do what we ever can to make ourselves joyful and bliss and a Yuletide gay, whatever that is. And then we'll return to our problems on January 2nd. Christians have hope. Because God said, I will crush his head. And I'll take you through this. And so when Christians hear God's word taught, just as Joseph heard that day, we'll see at the end next week, when we get to the end of this passage, he got up and obeyed the Lord. That's what Christians do. Because we know God is greater. It isn't hard to go to Genesis 6. And see this tension continue to grow. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of, of man was great on the earth. And every, listen to this, every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Tough first Christmas. When I have a baby, there's someone trying to kill it. Your family is not with you for one reason or another. Nobody believes you. Man is wicked. The Lord was sorry. He lamented over man, didn't he, in this verse? He laments over the creation of man on the earth, and his heart grieves. We see a real personal 
view of God here, don't we? We see that he made us in his image, and we grieve, and we hurt, and we understand this. And God looks at his creation knowing they would do this, and yet he shows us his emotions and says, look what man has done with what I've given him. Do you not think he thought the same thing as they crucify his son? Knowing that was the plan, knowing that was that, but a but a clear made us in his image, made us with emotions, a love of his son, and watch his son die for sinful men. It's fascinating, isn't it, when you think about this? The Lord says, look, I'm going to blot out man from what I've created, from the face of the earth, and from man to animal to creeping things, and to the birds and skies, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And guess who Noah has? A son named Shem. Shem goes on to be the line of Israel, the Hebrews. And in that line is the line of Jesus Christ. And you can follow Shem all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the evil world God is taking care of. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. I've got to hurry here. I want to get through just Genesis real quick. It only took me a year to teach through it. Verse 1 and 2, now it came about after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. Here we go, tension again. Abraham couldn't even get his wife pregnant. Patriarch after patriarch has barren women, right? So that they cannot take any, uh, any credit for these children that come along. And now he's finally got the son. This is where Jacob's going to come from this. And this is where Judah's going to come from Jacob and so forth. And the line of Christ is going to go. And God says, look, Abraham, I want you to take him to the mountain. I want you to kill him. It's an amazing test, right? It's death. Everything's in this. This teaches us the fall of man and how God uses that to make us turn our eyes to God. And you know this beautiful story. He tests Abraham. Abraham goes up there. He's trying to teach a picture of something greater to come, a greater lamb, a greater sacrifice. Everything's greater when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's showing us there is a promised one coming, a lamb, a final lamb who will have thorns around its head and will take the place of the chosen one. And that's Jesus, the chosen one. He'll be that one who takes the place of us and he'll be put on there. Chapter 42, I'm skipping a lot of good ones, but for the sake of time, look at chapter 42 with me. The little nation is now in Jacob and his 12 sons. He's missing one because he thinks he's dead, but he's actually in Egypt. And he's providing, God is using him to provide for the safety and the, the security of the nation of Israel, particularly through Judah, the line of Christ. And Jacob in here says, now Jacob saw that, verse 42, verse 1, that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place. And listen to this phrase, so that we may live and not die. There's the tension again. Death's always knocking on the door of humanity. And yet God's there. Chapter 50, verse 20, just to sum this all up. The brother's going, uh-oh. 
Joseph's a bigwig here, and uh, we really kind of blew it, and we're a little bit afraid of him. And you know this verse, chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, now look at this, to preserve many people alive. In closing, I want you to understand, God is protecting the line of Christ. He protects the seed in the, in the womb of Mary, no miscarriages, no harm to her or the baby could come. But he's been doing that from the beginning. And they're born in a filthy, sinful, God-rejecting world. But that babe, that babe is our salvation. And so when we think of Christmas now, And though there are some fun things, and I hope you have fun as a family, what dominates our thinking is a Savior who can beat sin, Satan, and death, and did. Amen? Amen. That's Christmas. We'll continue this next week and finish Isaiah 7 and look into Mary's life, and then we'll continue to walk through as we see the birth of Christ on Christmas morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for... uh, a chance to slow down and think about this great tension that happens within the Bible. It's a good tension because you have victory over it, but it's a good reminder, Lord, that everything isn't just rosy and everything's perfect and along comes a bouncing baby boy. It's rough. There's a lot of lack of understanding of what God's doing. There's hurt, there's heartbreak, there's isolation. There's fear. There's all this happening. But through all of that, you cut through that. And you bring a child planned from the foundations of the world who can come and do what no one else can do. He's a redeemer. He's a giver of new life. He's the king of glory. And so, Lord, we want to think properly through this, Christian, this Christmas season, Lord. And Lord, when our minds begin to drift and get caught up in some of the things that we know we probably shouldn't get caught up in, bring us back to this truth. And Lord, we want to have a worshipful Christmas season. Lord, I thank you for everyone that's come today. Lord, I pray that this would help jumpstart this season, that we would be worshipers and really enjoy and have true and lasting joy, not fading like the world has, but true and lasting joy as we contemplate our glorious Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.